Well, here we are on another Monday, part three of a series which may go on at some length on who told you about what the Bible is, who wrote it, how we got it. How do, what do we do with this? If you listened to the last two weeks, which I hope you did, then this one uh, is, is really a follow-on. As I kept reading scripture, I kept finding things like Jesus and the Samaritan woman. We'll talk more about her later in the series. That was completely unexpected and not a normal thing for a rabbi to do. It was done intentionally. Then you find Galatians chapter 5. When was the last time you heard a sermon on Galatians 5 verses 1 through 6 where Paul expressly states the only, this is a quote, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself and love. By the way, when I brought that up at a group of ministers, they immediately twisted it to mean faith as in all of the way we interpret scripture, but we have to express that in love. No, our faith isn't interpretations. Our faith is, the, is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that faith, that belief expressing itself in love may look different than your faith expressing itself. And in fact, the way I express my faith might make you uncomfortable, but I'm not expressing my faith for you. And you're not expressing your faith for me. And the only thing that matters is that we express our faith in love. That's right in there. And then 1 Corinthians 13, the only three things remain. Faith, hope, love, and complete precision and doctrine and practice. No, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is, say it with me, love. What did you just say? Well, you just said what Paul said. And what Paul said is that love even trumps faith and hope. Love trumps it. So when you read the Old Testament, or, or the New, but mainly in the Old Testament about all the blood and the gore, and you start going, whoa, 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 that doesn't sound like Jesus, you're right. Love had to come through, but it wasn't easy to get the message to us. Still isn't. All you have to do is follow Christian Twitter, left or right or center, and you'll find, ah, boy, it's the love thing. We're still missing the love thing. Jesus, um, in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, that, that people were more important than rules about the Sabbath. Or how about James chapter 2, verse 13, where... Um, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Wow, that was new to me. That was new when I was a, a young minister because that's not the way I'd been taught. And all of a sudden the word gospel, meaning good news, makes sense. That it is good news. This whole God is love thing became real to me. In Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In fact, Jesus was okay with David eating the showbread because he was hungry. What a radical, I'm serious when I say radical. That, that's like tossing dynamite into this building we've made of what the Bible is and how it was written. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, love trumps everything again. It's almost like he's trying to get a message to us. I think he is. And that strange judgment scene in Matthew 25, when we are judged on how we treated others, 
who had less than us? Did you visit them in prison? Did you feed them? Did you clothe them? Did you care for them? That's the criteria that Jesus says is going to be on the day of judgment. Hmm. How about Isaiah 1? I'm going to let you just look these up. Isaiah 1 and verse 17, Galatians 5, verse 14. Um, you can go to John chapter 13, verse 15, and then ask. It seems, ask yourself, what is it that God's been trying to tell us all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament? The superiority of love and that love is what is required from us. Our faith expressing itself in love. Now, that changes the way we look at the Bible. Is the Bible a rule book or is it a narrative? When I was a boy, the, the sermon illustrations always had a greater impact on me than the facts because stories have always meant so much to me. And I often heard preachers talk about the Bible as our law book or as a roadmap. In fact, there was even a series of slides in one of the film strips we would show that showed the answer you would get to your question really is like a roadmap. It differs according to where you are on this road. And that's not a bad, it's not a bad observation. It was even said to be our constitution. And I never questioned God's absolute authority, nor do I today. But I was confused about some of the phrasing I found in scripture. For example, Isaiah 1, and verse 18, I already mentioned 117, well, 118, where God says, come, let us reason together. I can remember being brave enough to finally ask a couple of different Bible teachers, what, what does that mean? And their response was really, that's God is inviting you into a dialogue that you two can talk until you understand that the way he says it is the right way. Well, that's not a reasoning together. That is a come here and get your mind right. That's a different thing entirely. Jesus then tells us whenever two of us disagree about anything, we should hurry up to agree, but he never tells us to go check out and see which one is right and the other one wrong and the wrong one repent. And no, he just says, just get along. If you ever had parents that did that to you, say, I don't really care which kid threw the first punch. I don't really care which kid flushed the first toy? Get along. There were times as I would sit in the middle because I had two older sisters, so I always had to ride the transmission home. And dad would get angry and that hand would just come back. And it really didn't matter who got whacked. It was that somebody got whacked uh, or that we were all in danger you know, of that. That settled us down. Jesus is almost doing the same thing here, although not trying to hit anybody, saying, just get along. Stop with the incessant arguing. Paul told Yodia and Sendiki, and I hope that's the way you pronounce their names, but they've been dead a long time, so I've not been able to ask. He told them to agree with one another, but he, once again, he never mentioned who might be right. He just said, just, just learn to agree with each other. The agreement was what God wanted. The unity of the Spirit was what he wanted. He didn't seem to be as interested in the right side winning as I am, which is a humbling thing once you realize it. Many times Jesus was asked a question or put into a situation that was a hanging curveball. He could have whacked that thing right out of the park, but he didn't. 
because he wasn't interested in winning the argument. He was interested in winning the person. Well, it would seem that our Bible, if it was a rule book, would have been pulled out and used in different ways than this. In fact, Jesus even went further. He said to his apostles, if two of them agreed or more agreed about anything on earth, they'd agree with it in heaven. There's a reasoning, a developing, and a rolling out of the will of God and us and how God didn't have to create us, but not only did he, he is letting us help shape what happens. Not to sit back and be ordered, but to be involved, to be a part of the process. That's in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, if you're looking. Can we make, can, can what we agree on actually make a difference in God's plans or the mind of God? I would think, yes, because if it doesn't, why do you pray? When you pray, you're asking for change to occur in the universe, whether it's physical, like a healing, a change in those in power, or whether it's emotional, or whether it is metaphysical, you know, help my grandson believe, or help my aunt, you know, lay down her, um, her opioids and get help, or whatever it is. And by the way, my grandson's fine, my aunt's fine, I'm just using terms. Whenever, whatever it is, why would you pray if what you pray about cannot sway and redirect the universe? Jesus felt enough about prayer where he spent a great deal of time doing it. I'd have to ask why. What's the point if everything is predetermined? It isn't. Spoiler alert. We're involved. And we're supposed to be helping, being fellow laborers with Christ, as Paul would put it. If the Bible were a rule book, none of these things would ever be said. None. If it's a narrative, however, it would move and change and breathe as the story goes along, and that's exactly what happened. We talked about the Ammonites and the Moabites last week. Um, the disapproval of the Moabites is mentioned far more places than we talked about last week. You can look at Jeremiah 48, you can look at Ezekiel 21, uh, Ezekiel 25. You can read Zephaniah chapter two. You can read Isaiah 15. God seems to really have it in for the Moabites. And then, and then, love trumps all of this. So did God change his mind? No. What we thought God wanted changed. As we drew closer to him, it changed. I would submit to you, that he wasn't done drawing us 300 years after Jesus when the Bible's books were finally generally agreed upon. That really didn't finish till after the Protestant Reformation. Uh, and there are some who would still argue about, um, uh, argue about that right now. So just be aware, God did not stop using the Spirit, drawing us, working us into this, developing our love and growing our love. He's still doing it. We looked at Jonah. We look at, uh, we, we can, by the way, all through the Old Testament, 
there are many passages that show God always intended to save all people. Jonah, I love the book of Jonah. Look there. God even cares about the animals. At the very end of it, he goes, come on, you know, you care about the people, but if you can't care about them, what about the cows? Uh, it's a hilarious ending, and it's a very touching ending. But how about Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3? God intended to save all people. How about Isaiah 49 and verse 6? God intends to save all people. Well, then why were the laws against so many races put into place? Well, there was a different situation going on. One family had to stay intact. One family had to survive. That family had to survive, leaving Egypt, establishing itself in Canaan, going through all the ups and downs and downs and downs and downs and downs of kings and wars and captivities. They had to stay alive to deliver the Messiah in Bethlehem of Judea. So there were rules to keep them a distinct people, but people overwrote the rules by saying, all right, none of these foreigners in, when God kept bringing them in and then endorsing them again and again, like in Gen uh, Matthew 1 with Jesus's lineage, God's imprimatur saying, yes, I endorse this. So what happens? We tend to overspeak for God. And I said we, it's, it's a collective pronoun. And uh, the Garden of Eden, Satan goes up to Eve and goes, well, so can you eat from everything in every tree? And she goes, yeah, we can, except for that one. That one, we can't eat from that and we can't even touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. It is a human thing to overspeak. If you don't believe that, watch or listen to any news. If this happens, all of us are gonna die. No, if that doesn't happen, then all of us are gonna die. Well, and nobody wants to live near a middle ground there because you get shot from both sides. We always tend to overspeak, even for God. I see God breaking our hearts with stories like those of Ezra and then giving us a story of Hosea to show us what he really thinks, to bring the people back. Don't shove them in a desert, bring them back. I wanna just spend a couple minutes on Hosea here. Um, many books have been written that uh, Gomer, was, uh, Gomer was the woman in the story. Uh, she was an adulteress before the marriage, like uh, Kyle and Delish say, they're the big commentaries. Uh, Others say she was adulterous after it, but regardless, as a prophet of God, Hosea was forbidden from marrying a woman like Gomer, but God said, go marry her. Wait, wait, our rules say, don't do that. God says, go do that. Well, he goes, her adultery gets so bad that each kid born, he names a different version of not my kid. Then she leaves him. By the way, Hosea might have been really a brutally hard man to live with. We don't know. We just don't know. We don't know Gomer's side of the story. Next time we see her, she's on the slave auction block, being auctioned for the lowest price that you could give for a slave. And God says, not only to go get her and pay the price, he says, woo her back, court her 
love her so much that she will come to you willingly. You don't own her. God owns her. Woo her. And once he does, he says, now you're going to need to change the names of those kids. No more of this. These aren't my kids anymore. These are my people. This is my lineage. This is my heritage. You name them. Very much a precursor of the story of Christ coming and saving us. And also a repudiation of those who think God hates Ammonites and Moabites. Well, we'll talk more next week. We've hit the magic 16 minutes now, and I don't want to run you all the way up to 20 once again. But God bless you. I hope you have fun with this. I really do. God bless you, and we will come at this again next Monday.